This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Many years ago, shortly after moving to Manhattan, I took a taxi cab from the Upper East Side to my then apartment in Chelsea. Luther Vandross was playing on the radio, singing a remake of the popular Leon Russell song, Superstar. I loved that song and all of its various incarnations, the raunchy version performed by the songwriter, the haunting interpretation by Bette Midler, or the heartbreakingly earnest Karen Carpenter rendition. This was the first time I had heard Luther's version, and I was mesmerized by his silky, seductive voice and his smooth but urgent delivery. I was traveling downtown after viewing my first ever movie at the New York Film Festival. And as I made my way downtown, I suddenly felt a thrill of brio and pride. I was living in New York City. I was working in a field that I loved. I had just come from one of the most famous film festivals in the world, and I had gone via an invitation from my then editor boss. At 21 years old, I suddenly felt like I had made it. I had never in my life felt that way before. But as my taxi traveled on, as I neared my tiny tenement apartment and Luther faded away, I suddenly realized I was kidding myself. I was no different than I had been yesterday, no different than three months before or five years before that. I was simply a bit older. I mor morbidly thought to myself, how much more obvious could I possibly be? I became certain that everyone could see right through me and I knew, knew in that moment that no amount of posh movie tickets could camouflage the way that I felt about myself. In today's culture, for whatever reason, I find that when it comes to assessing other people, we are quick to make decisions about what we believe is obvious. Obviously, Barry Bonds took steroids. Obviously, that man had sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Obviously, Freckles is in love with Sawyer. Obviously, Brad was having an affair with Angelina long before he left Jen. Obviously, there were no weapons of mass destruction. No matter how hard the media or our parents or our government might try, it seems no one can persuade us otherwise. We know when people are lying or hiding something because we feel it is obvious and we just know what we know that we know. As we search for clues or tip-offs and proof of the truth in everything around us, we apply what we think we know even to the things that we don't. Inasmuch as we can be completely and utterly certain of the truths and lies and obviousness of others, I find that many people have difficulty admitting what is obvious about themselves to themselves. Why is that? How can we be so sure about the truths of others and so clueless about what is true and obvious about ourselves? Isn't it possible that if everyone could be so sure that they could suss out what is obvious and true, that those very same rules could apply to our own behavior? 
For example, if I think that I can always tell when someone is lying, doesn't it stand to reason that people could tell when I'm not telling the truth? Why again, as a culture, do we think that anyone could be immune to this supposed unique ability? Is it possible that we all just think we are smarter than everybody else? Or is there just that many different ways of looking at a blackbird? Once again, we come back to the subject of objective versus subjective experience and how language and behavior impact our views. I think that what is wonderful about art is that it is capable of uncovering both what isn't obvious, but at the same time is representative of the truth. But it also takes us further. Art helps expand the notion of what is obvious and true. The biggest difference between art and language is this. With language, you will often hear the following. That's not what I meant by what I said. But in art, you rarely hear. That's not what I meant by what I drew. I found out recently that a friend lied to me. It wasn't a drastic lie, but it was enough of one to cause concern. I was perplexed as to why this person would try and get away with this falsehood when it occurred to me that the more obvious a lie is, the more the liar needs it to be true. And sometimes, all we, just need, we all just need things to be true, if only to ourselves. We just need them to be true to ourselves. Perhaps all we can hope for in each other is that our intentions and our actions are true, and to consider not how obvious we may be, but why. I think that the humorist Henry Wheeler Shaw said it best when he wrote, The trouble with people is not that they don't know, but that they know so much that ain't so. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Melman. I'm your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is illustrator, designer, and author, Christoph Niemann. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a little bit more about him. Christoph Niemann's pictures paint a thousand witty words, but the wily artist and designer claims to have only one trick up his sleeve. The New York-based humorist calls it sitting in front of a white piece of paper and thinking, staring, and drawing until my head hurts. The end results, often exoriating political commentary, have in turn caused others, in places like the White House, for instance, quite a few headaches. The American President George Bush is a much-loved target in Newman's collections. That will be fun to talk about today. He also likes to take his teeth into anthropomorphized toothbrushes that engage in human acts. I should let all of our listeners know how much I have rehearsed that word. The odd take on things has garnered numerous awards from American Illustration, the American Institute of Graphic Arts, and the Society of Publication Designers. Magazines like the Atlantic Monthly, the New York Times Magazine, and the New Yorker want his filled-up pieces of white paper their covers. Welcome, Christoph. Very good to be here. Oh, it's so nice to have you here. I'm going to have to say that pesky little word again. The first thing I want to ask you about is your anthropomorphized toothbrush work. You have illustrated a toothbrush, um, how shall I say it, fooling around with toothpaste, smoking in bed together afterwards, and in other sordid positions. So why a toothbrush? 
I, I guess I am a little bit of a dental hygiene freak. <laughs> and, uh, in that year, the things I, think, I find out of people yeah, on the exactly, show. Exactly, exactly. No, but uh, uh, at the end, it was just pure desperation for that one assignment to do something that's just out of what could be expected. And um, and that toothbrush idea just flew at me, and it worked, I think, for that one assignment. But I think there's not too much interpretation going on there other than <laughs> it was a weird metaphor. So uh, you have a, a dental hygienist fetish. Well, uh, at least that's what people tell me. Uh, but how, so how did you get the idea? Like, it just popped into your head, I want to do something with anthropomorphized toothbrushes? Yeah, I'm going to keep saying it now because I'm so impressed yeah. with myself for having been able to say it. No, the idea was, uh, um, it was the cover for American Illustration. It's an yes. annual an illustration that comes out once a year. And it's really for, uh, I looked at that book when I was a student. And, and when I uh, got called by Robert Priest to do the, the cover, of course, it's a huge honor. But on the other hand, it's also a gigantic pressure because... The newspaper work I do goes away within a day. Mm-hmm. Like people look at it for 20 minutes, then it's gone. Right. A book like this sticks around, and also uh, you don't get a second chance on something like that. So I'm I'm a little bit victim to what I call like the Stockholm syndrome for illustrators, which is like you're being held cat- uh, held captive by uh, editors and art directors who tell you what to do, and at some point you become addicted to like the. And you try to fight against it, but at some point I really uh, realized I needed that you know, like guidance and people tell me, like, you can't do this and you have to do this and then work against it. Mm-hmm. But these guys told me, do whatever you want. Uh-huh. And I felt totally at loss. I felt like, how could I do what I want? I'm used to telling pe- people telling me, like, it's got to be this, it's got to be that. And then kind of like starting a fight, but there was nothing to fight against. Right. So I was like really absolutely desperate when I worked on this until they told me, oh, actually it's our 20th issue. We want to call it American Illustration XX. So why don't you just do something sexual? Mm-hmm. And that was like the solution to my problems because I f- there I had something to, like, like a guidance to ignore. Right. And so I, so I hear, yeah, I give you sexual. So, right. so, and that's how I came <laughs> up with the This is going to be a fun right. interview. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I've noticed in a lot of the work that you've done um, in print magazine, for example, you have this dialogue between the illustrator and the editor, and that's a relationship that you've um, talked about a lot and you've used in your illustration quite a lot. So what is it, do you feel like there's a tension, a a general tension between editors and illustrators, or is it something that you personally feel very strongly encroached by for for most of the time, or do you feel like it's something that ultimately is an inspiration in the grand scheme of things? I think it's an absolutely inevitable and beautiful collaboration when you work for uh, especially editorial clients um, to have somebody in there who's in control of the larger context. And uh, and there's a lot of editors, and you know, mostly I deal with art directors, but you kind of get the the opinion of the editors, of course, through the art director. And uh, uh, I, th- I think it's beautiful and inspirational to work with them. Often enough, of course, the problem is that when somebody kills your work, it's usually the editor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 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 of course, your wrath always goes against the editor who was, like, stupid enough to not understand how beautifully humorous uh, yes. any particular idea, uh, a particular idea was. Um, when you did your first cover for Print Magazine for the New Visual Artist Review, you said that you hate to give away your secrets, but in your opinion, kitchen equipment is an abundant source of visual basics for illustrators. So we've gone from bathroom utensils um, to kitchen utensils. So tell me how that for you has been something that 
is um, a basic source of visual inspiration. I mean, I, I don't know if I really want to hold it to the bathroom or the kitchen. I'm sure there's other rooms in oh, the we'll, apartment. We'll, we'll, that are we'll like get through them. <laughs> I haven't done something on doorknobs that's, that's coming up probably. Um, no, but I mean, obviously for the kind of work I do, I found that working with a benign metaphor or like starting with a benign thing and turning and twisting that into something interesting and like making something unexpected happening with something benign is much easier or like much more promising than starting out with a knight and a dragon. Once you're, you're at a knight and a dragon and you just like put a little knot in the tail of the dragon, that doesn't really add much because the dragon's sitting there so big. And when you have a, uh, like, an, like a flat iron or a fridge or, or, or a toothbrush, it's just, it gives you more chance to really add something that's going to be more surprising to the viewer. Mm-hmm. Now, one, um, one of the things that you said in Fresh Dialogue is that you change your ideas about how appropriate your symbols are on a daily basis. Is that still true for you? Oh no, absolutely, and it's 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 something that, that I think about a lot, and I feel like having done it now for a while, I get a little bit more sure-footed about like knowing when, how far I can go in certain circumstances. Um, oh, we have to take a break. So we will be back in um, just a few minutes. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the lovely illustrator and humorist Christoph Neiman. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, this is Scott Biondich, Global Packaging Manager at the Coca-Cola Company. And I'm really excited about the upcoming Fuse brand identity and package design event in New York City this April. I'll be there revealing the critical steps to developing differentiated and preferred packaging for consumers around the world. Design gurus Rem Koolhaas and Philippe Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target, will go in-depth into the most pressing issues we face. They'll deliver cutting-edge ideas that demonstrate brand growth and bottom-line impact through innovative strategy and design. For more information, call 888-670-8200. Visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD or send an email to register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Hey, rise to the challenge. I look forward to seeing you in the Big Apple this April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Tune into Small Business Trends Radio with Anita Campbell every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Each week, Anita and expert guests provide a big picture view of the small business market, identifying the trends and major events driving the robust growth of the small business market. Whether you are a small business owner or a company of any size desiring to sell small businesses or reach the small business market with a product or service, Small Business Trends Radio is your resource for trends that influence the global small business market. Right here on the Bottom line for business talk, Voice America Business. Achieve total wealth management. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf. 
Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, businessamericaradio.com. The Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.18 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City on a very beautiful spring day. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is illustrator and humorist, Christoph Neiman. If you'd like to join our conversation or if you have a question for Christoph, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. So, Christoph, before the uh, break, we were talking about some of the um, visual symbols you utilize, but I think that a lot of your work also utilizes very unexpected metaphors. I mean, there's no question that your skill as an illustrator is phenomenal. But I think that what makes your work so special for me as the viewer is also the intellect with the skill and the way that you use metaphors. And, you know, this is just sort of one of those random, you know, sort of -of run-of-the-mill questions, but I just need to know, (laughs) how do you come up with your ideas? Do you have to work hard at it, or does it come easily to you? How do these things pop into your head? It's like magic looking at them. Well, it's uh, don't show the sweat. That's the that's the trick. No, it, it it really is hard labor. And of course, every once in a while, something just falls out of the sky in a stair and 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 works. But um, what it comes down to is really just I'm I never do any research once I get an assignment. No, so I work entirely with what I know. Uh, obviously, I read the article, mm-hmm. but. Um, that's also why I love like working for like political or business or, or cultural stuff where I already have a certain basic knowledge. But um, I, I, I really work with what I already know. So I try to supply myself constantly with like pop culture and culture mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of like, fill myself up. So I'm what I uh, call like a multi-dilettant. Like I know a little bit about a lot of things, mm-hmm. but, I, but I actually think sometimes it's harmful to know too much. And then we have to kind of like the reader's perspective and try to come up with something that like the reader can appreciate because I'm not, I'm not in, on, a, on a higher scale than the reader is. And then just like sitting there and then just desperately running, running through like four, 400 different metaphors, drawing around. I, 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 I think while I draw and then sometimes when I draw something, something comes up and I realize when I add this or when I make this bigger, it turns into something. Or if I replace the car with a with a bottle of Coke, then all of a sudden it, it works or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the toughest assignment that you've ever done, that you've ever tackled? I mean, the, 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 uh, the American illustration, was I was really, really desperate for mm-hmm. that one. But um, And yet that, some of that work now is some of your most known. Yeah, I mean, a really, really tough one are New Yorker covers are incredibly hard mm-hmm. because the pressure from the magazine is so big, understandably, because it's there, like they sell their magazine. They have to flap on the newsstand, but essentially it has to carry the cover without a line of type. Mm-hmm. So And it's an open pitch, so you know like a lot of other extremely intelligent uh, uh, wonderfully gifted artists are working on the same topics probably so you sit there and that's a, a, a lot of pressure and also you, you don't really have the dialogue before you send in a sketch with the art director because it's really an open pitch you're like so I didn't have. realize that's the way the New Yorker works so they'll hire several illustrators at once all give you the same topic no they hire the everybody 
there's nobody's hired. Like, there's very few issues where they call people up. And uh-huh. I've had, like, one or two where the art director called me and said, you should think about this and that. But it's an open pitch. You could send an idea tomorrow and say, like, here, I, th- I think this would be a great drawing. Really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's really interesting. Now, what do you think about the, the whole brouhaha over the abandoned Mardi Gras cover in favor of the Cheney shooting cover? I Personally, from, from a design perspective, mm-hmm. I absolutely prefer the Cheney uh, cover. I thought it was smarter, it was more timely, it was better. The, the Mardi Gras cover, I didn't even look that much into detail about reading some of the things on blogs. I, I, I saw that there, like things were written on um, on like the leg or so it said Katrina or like on the shirt it said Katrina or something. That's, that's one thing. From an art perspective, I don't agree, but that's another thing. I think when you start being an editorial illustrator, there's a certain thing you don't do. And it's like things get killed, and I think you. I, I pitch to friends about it when thing, my things get killed, and I've done things where I thought they would have been better covers for the New Yorker or like other things that didn't uh, eventually happen. But I think going out there, it's just it doesn't. It's not right. Like it, it feels. Yeah, it feels I wondered. Wrong. It, yeah, I felt like it was somehow a betrayal. And 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 yes, it's happened to all of us. And you know, part of what I was talking about in my monologue is, you know, we of course always think that what we do is yeah. the right thing, and our decision, you know, the design that I created is better than what the client picked and or what the client didn't pick. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, I think that for me, it felt in as much as. I could understand topically, and I felt very sympathetic about it from a topical standpoint to have that killed. Yeah. Um, I also felt that the Cheney cover was a better illustration. It was smarter. And I also thought that there was a wonderful space around the illustration that was done right after Katrina that was on the New Yorker cover. On there, New Yorker there were a number of them. There was yeah, the, the, the Blues cover, which yeah, was very which like, so like quiet, but uh, I stunning, think like very yeah. strong in mm-hmm. its quietness. But there was also the one with the White House people, the Barry Blit, where, yeah. where, where they're drowning Browning. in the White House. White yeah. House and that kind of covered it all. And like the Mardi Gras and the other things, I hate Carnival. Like mm. one of the reasons I'm really glad like I'm out of Germany, which I still miss in a lot of regards, is that I don't have to live through this whole horrible Carnival in Cologne and like yeah. like Mainz and all these cities. Although I still always will have a special spite, uh, spot in my heart for Myra Kalman's Misery Day Parade cover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a caller on the line. Um, Gregory from New York. Welcome to Design Matters. Gregory. I guess Gregory's not there. Oh, how sad. We were really looking forward to talking with him today. Um, so you and Nicholas Blackman, and I said this to him when he was on the show, you're like the Lennon and McCartney of the design community. Uh, you often collaborate on projects and have done a number of books together, most recently 100% Evil. Uh, tell us about your relationship and how you collaborate. Well, um if it wasn't for design, Nicholas is really like the best beer drinking buddy one could have. And uh, uh, I, like a lot of the things we did together really just came out of like uh, working uh, working together during the day at the times and then meeting up at night and talking politics and talking culture and talking like a lot of illustration and design. And then really finding out that we had like a lot of common interests in like publishing, like doing certain kind of books that, that, that speak to a certain audience and that also... Uh, 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 like these, like small publications are for me like a better, um, better outlet for. You know, there's always this vanity aspect in illustration. I try to really keep that as low as possible in my everyday work. Well, tell me about that though. What what is this vanity aspect that well, you're talking so, about? I think 99% of all illustrators, or probably like a, like a majority of graphic designers, do their job because they at some point in their life drew. 
and probably drew better than other people and like try to like at least in my case you know like, try to like up your social standing by your drawing skills and like being a rock star well yeah of course on a much much smaller scale besides that it didn't work but uh, uh the the, uh, the problem is like when you draw like you want to show other people how well you can draw there's like always this instinct and I try to really restrain myself in like not basing my ideas and my drawings on my skill what I like to draw what maybe I can draw but really what works what, what makes the joke funnier what makes the reader happier or laughing harder and so this, this is something where I really try to take my own interest out of my everyday illustrations and of course that comes in like my personal human what I like is part of it mm -hmm. but it's something that I really try to restrain myself from whereas these books it's this kind of thing where I try to let go and just do whatever I want to do in in 100% evil there's like some uh, crazy drawings that are just for the fun of drawing I don't care if people get it it's just like me sitting there and like having fun drawing uh, uh, there's this one like a banana iceberg mm -hmm. with like a shoe running across the ocean I don't know if like 5% of the readers get this joke but I had a hell of a good time drawing it and so this is the kind of thing where I, uh, it's, it's really my outlet for, for like my repressed drawing love. <laughs> I wonder what other household appliances we'll see in future editions. But you've referred to your 100% series as editorial illustration without an editor. And, so, and you've also said that you and Nicholas are creating an alternative space for drawing outside the world of magazines and publishing. At the beginning, what motivated you to do this? I, I really love for places, we're working for places like the New Yorker and the Times, but obviously there's a lot of back and forth with editors and you get a lot of ideas killed that's just part of, uh, of the job and it's not something I'm the least little bit bitter about. The only problem is that at some point as you actually become smarter, you start not necessarily self-censoring yourself, but you know how far you can go, you know like w what works and then you try to twist a little bit, but still like you get very aware of like your, your space and, and what's doable. The problem when you do that too often or for too long, at some point you automatically walk within these boundaries. So like setting up a project that deliberately takes down these barriers and where you can actually draw whatever you want. Nobody would ever kill it. Where it's all about, you know, usually always you always say, oh, I would have done something much much funnier if they would have let me. And this is the kind mm. of place where we say like, well, everybody lets us do anything. So here we can really prove or like prove to ourselves like what we would actually do if nobody told yeah, us. Yeah, like, ultimate accountability yeah. in many ways. Yeah. Um, so what is next with the 100% series? I was really interested because initially in, in the research that um, Jen, my researcher, found on you, it was about the 100% was 23% of this or 7% of this, and then 100% evil came out, and that was 100%. And I wasn't sure if that meant that this was the final piece in the series. And I actually never asked Nicholas that, so I must ask you. Well, it is, uh, it's a very long story and probably like one, more, uh, one, one beer too many involved in coming up with that concept. I, initially, the idea was also to self-publish these things mm -hmm. and to not go through a publisher. It was really like an outlet that we wanted to do for some friends, and we only printed 100 of each of them at the beginning. Right. And then also, we didn't want to make any profit on them. So we divided the production cost by 100, so one book would cost exactly 100th of the production price. And then like the first book cost uh, $2,300 to make, so one book costs $23 equals 23%. 23%. And then we would go on until we fill up the whole library would be $100, 100% books. And the problem with that 
was just that production of these uh, it was so intense and so much work to produce them and then we would only have 100 so we'd be really like stingy with like not giving them out to people because mm -hmm. they'd be gone like within a month or so and then sure. there would be other people we would want to give them to and then we had such a good uh, relationship with Princeton that we at some point showed them what we were working on with 100% evil and they liked it and they said they would publish it that's when we said like to hell with our <laughs> with our concept we right. like have much more fun like actually having a book that where we have a couple of thousand and, and really like people being able to buy them all over the world and also what wasn't the case back then you couldn't buy things over the internet and now you can so right. you can really re reach a huge bigger. audience yeah. now and that's a, that's a huge advantage we'll have a couple more questions about 100% Evil we'll come back after our break and talk about it a little bit more I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Melman on Voice America Business I am your host Debbie Melman and my guest today is illustrator and humorist Christoph Neiman we will be right back with our broadcast after these messages so please don't go away Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hello, I'm Sharon Ryder Lindberg from Unilever North America. I'll be speaking at Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event in April at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. I'll be discussing the development and the rollout of the new Hellman's Global Brand Identity. Fuse is the destination for brand design leaders. Will you be there? Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD or call 888-670-8200 to find out more about this great event. Consider this an investment in your brand's future. Clear your calendar and prepare to walk away with inspiration, insight, and creative new ideas to implement when you return to the office. Stay at the top of your game. Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD today. Mention design and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Look forward to seeing you in New York in, in April. Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson talks about the nuts and bolts of starting, running, and expanding the business. From time management, leadership, sales, marketing, and customer service to office management, using technology, business plans, accounting, taxes, and networking. Danielle and her expert guests share their years of experience on a variety of topics. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel for Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson. Useful tips, authoritative advice, creative solutions, Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. You work hard and you need to take time to relax and rejuvenate yourself. Travel is one of the most effective and gratifying ways to achieve this. Tune into Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Your host, Judy Jackson, will teach you how you can enhance your lifestyle through travel. Travel Connections will also bring you the latest news on what's hot and exciting in vacation and travel trends. So tune in to Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk show on the air focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. 
I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today is the wonderful illustrator, humorist, author, Christoph Niemann. If you want to join our conversation or if you have a question for Christoph, now's your chance. Our phone lines are open, 866-472-5790, and we do have a caller on the line. Gregory is back with us. Gregory, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Christoph. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Um, I know one of the things I love the most is I, I buy old Women's Day and Family Circle magazines from the 40s and 50s and early 60s, and the thing that I pour over that I just devour is a lot of the product illustration in the advertisement. Um, I always find somehow it's much more interesting than plain old photography, and I'm wondering if, if um, you ever think there's a way that there would be not a full return, obviously, but some return to illustration of product, or is it that we live in a society where the consumer must see what the product looks like or they won't be able to find it on the shelf, thereby creating a sort of um, consumer product image? This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Many years ago, shortly after moving to Manhattan, I took a taxi cab from the Upper East Side to my then-apartment in Chelsea. Luther Vandross was playing on the radio, singing a remake of the popular Leon Russell song, Superstar. I loved that song and all of its various incarnations, the raunchy version performed by the songwriter, the haunting interpretation by Bette Midler, or the heartbreakingly earnest Karen Carpenter rendition. This was the first time I had heard Luther's version, and I was mesmerized by his silky, seductive voice and his smooth but urgent delivery. I was traveling downtown after viewing my first ever movie at the New York Film Festival, and as I made my way downtown, I suddenly felt a thrill of brio and pride. I was living in New York City. I was working in a field that I loved. I had just come from one of the most famous film festivals in the world, and I had gone via an invitation from my then editor boss. At 21 years old, I suddenly felt like I had made it. I had never in my life felt that way before. But as my taxi traveled on, as I neared my tiny tenement apartment and Luther faded away, I suddenly realized I was kidding myself. I was no different than I had been yesterday, no different than three months before or five years before that. I was simply a bit older. I mor- morbidly thought to myself, how much more obvious could I possibly be? I became certain that everyone could see right through me, and I knew, knew in that moment that no amount of posh movie tickets could camouflage the way that I felt about myself. In today's culture, For whatever reason, I find that when it comes to assessing other people, we are quick to make decisions about what we believe is obvious. Obviously, Barry Bonds took steroids. Obviously, that man had sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. 
Obviously, Freckles is in love with Sawyer. Obviously, Brad was having an affair with Angelina long before he left Jen. Obviously, there were no weapons of mass destruction. No matter how hard the media or our parents or our government might try, it seems no one can persuade us otherwise. We know when people are lying or hiding something because we feel it is obvious and we just know what we know that we know. As we search for clues or tip-offs and proof of the truth in everything around us, we apply what we think we know even to the things that we don't. Inasmuch as we can be completely and utterly certain of the truths and lies and obviousness of others, I find that many people have difficulty admitting what is obvious about themselves to themselves. Why is that? How can we be so sure about the truths of others and so clueless about what is true and obvious about ourselves? Isn't it possible that if everyone could be so sure that they could suss out what is obvious and true, that those very same rules could apply to our own behavior? For example, if I think that I can always tell when someone is lying, doesn't it stand to reason that people could tell when I'm not telling the truth? Why again, as a culture, do we think that anyone could be immune to this supposed unique ability? Is it possible that we all just think we are smarter than everybody else? Or is there just that many different ways of looking at a blackbird? Once again, we come back to the subject of objective versus subjective experience and how language and behavior impact our views. I think that what is wonderful about art is that it is capable of uncovering both what isn't obvious, but at the same time is representative of the truth. But it also takes us further. Art helps expand the notion of what is obvious and true. The biggest difference between art and language is this. With language, you will often hear the following. That's not what I meant by what I said. But in art, you rarely hear that's not what I meant by what I drew. I found out recently that a friend lied to me. It wasn't a drastic lie, but it was enough of one to cause concern. I was perplexed as to why this person would try and get away with this falsehood when it occurred to me that the more obvious a lie is, the more the liar needs it to be true. And sometimes, all we just need, we all just need things to be true, if only to ourselves. We just need them to be true to ourselves. Perhaps all we can hope for in each other is that our intentions and our actions are true. And to consider not how obvious we may be, but why. I think that the humorist Henry Wheeler Shaw said it best when he wrote, The trouble with people is not that they don't know but that they know so much that ain't so. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Melman. I'm your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is illustrator, designer, and author, Christoph Niemann. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a little bit more about him. Christoph Niemann's pictures paint a thousand witty words, but the wily artist and designer claims to have only one trick up his sleeve. The New York-based humorist calls it sitting in front of a white piece of paper and thinking, staring, and drawing until my head hurts. The end results, often exoriating political commentary, have in turn caused others, in places like the White House, for instance, quite a few headaches. 
The American President George Bush is a much-loved target in Newman's collections. That will be fun to talk about today. He also likes to take his teeth into anthropomorphized toothbrushes that engage in human acts. I should let all of our listeners know how much I have rehearsed that word. The Odd Take on Things has garnered numerous awards from American Illustration, the American Institute of Graphic Arts, and the Society of Publication Designers. Magazines like the Atlantic Monthly, the New York Times Magazine, and the New Yorker want his filled-up pieces of white paper for their covers. Welcome, Christoph. Very good to be here. Oh, it's so nice to have you here. I'm going to have to say that pesky little word again. The first thing I want to ask you about is your anthropomorphized toothbrush work. You have illustrated a toothbrush, um, how shall I say it, fooling around with toothpaste, smoking in bed together afterwards, and in other sordid positions. So why a toothbrush? Uh, I, I guess I am a little bit of a dental hygiene freak. <laughs> and, uh, in that year, the things I, think, I find out of people yeah, on the exactly, show. Exactly, exactly. No, but uh, uh, at the end, it was just pure desperation for that one assignment to do something that's just out of what could be expected. And um, and uh, that toothbrush idea just flew at me, and it worked, I think, for that one assignment. But I think there's not too much interpretation going on there other than <laughs> it was a weird metaphor. So uh, you have a, a dental hygienist fetish. Well, uh, at least that's what people tell me. Uh, but how, so how did you get the idea? Like, it just popped into your head, I want to do something with anthropomorphized toothbrushes? Yeah, I'm going to keep saying it now because I'm so impressed yeah. with myself for having been able to say it. Uh, no, the idea was, uh, um, it was the cover for American Illustration. It's an yes. annual an illustration that comes out once a year. And it's really for, uh, I looked at that book when I was a student. And, and when I uh, got called by Robert Priest to do the, the cover, of course, it's a huge honor. But on the other hand, it's also a gigantic pressure because... The newspaper work I do goes away within a day. Mm-hmm. Like people look at it for 20 minutes, then it's gone. Right. A book like this sticks around, and also uh, you don't get a second chance on something like that. So I'm I'm a little bit victim to what I call like the Stockholm syndrome for illustrators, which is like you're being held cat- uh, held captive by uh, editors and art directors who tell you what to do, and at some point you become addicted to like the. And you try to fight against it, but at some point I really uh, realized I needed that you know, like guidance and people tell me, like, you can't do this and you have to do this and then work against it. Mm-hmm. But these guys told me, do whatever you want. Uh-huh. And I felt totally at loss. I felt like, how could I do what I want? I'm used to telling pe- people telling me, like, it's got to be this, it's got to be that. And then kind of like starting a fight, but there was nothing to fight against. Right. So I was like really absolutely desperate when I worked on this until they told me, oh, actually it's our 20th issue. We want to call it American Illustration XX. So why don't you just do something sexual? Mm-hmm. And that was like the solution to my problems because I f- there I had something to, like, like a guidance to ignore. Right. And so sexual I was like, here, here, I give you sexual. So, right. so, and that's how it came <laughs> up with the This is going to be a fun interview. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I've noticed in a lot of the work that you've done um, in print magazine, for example, you have this dialogue between the illustrator and the editor, and that's a relationship that you've um, talked about a lot and you've used in your illustration quite a lot. So what is it, do you feel like there's a tension, a a general tension between editors and illustrators, or is it something that you personally feel very strongly encroached by for for most of the time, or do you feel like it's something that ultimately is an inspiration in the grand scheme of things? I think it's absolutely inevitable and beautiful collaboration when you work for uh, especially editorial clients. Um, 
to have somebody in there who's in control of the larger context. And and there's a lot of editors, and you know, mostly I deal with art directors, but you kind of get the the opinion of the editors, of course, through the art director. And uh, uh, I, th I think it's beautiful and inspirational to work with them. Often enough, of course, the problem is that when somebody kills your work, it's usually the editor. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, of course, your wrath always goes against the editor who was like stupid enough to not understand how beautifully humorous uh, yes. any particular idea, uh, a particular idea was. Um, when you did your first cover for Print Magazine for the New Visual Artist Review, you said that you hate to give away your secrets, but in your opinion, kitchen equipment is an abundant source of visual basics for illustrators. So we've gone from bathroom utensils um, to kitchen utensils. So tell me how that for you has been something that is um, a basic source of visual inspiration. I mean, I, I don't know if I really want to hold it to the bathroom or the kitchen. I'm sure there's other rooms in the oh, apartment we'll, we'll, that we'll, are like... We'll get through them. <laughs> I haven't done something on doorknobs that's, that's coming up probably. Um, no, but I mean, obviously for the kind of work I do, I found that working with a benign metaphor or like starting with a benign thing and turning and twisting that into something interesting and like making something unexpected happening with something benign is much easier or like much more promising than starting out with a knight and a dragon. Once you're, mm -hmm. you're at a knight and a dragon and you just like put a little knot in the tail of the dragon, that doesn't really add much because the dragon's sitting there so big. And when you have a, uh, like, an, like a flat iron or a fridge or, or, or a toothbrush, it's just, it gives you more chance to really add something that's going to be more surprising to the viewer. Mm -hmm. Now, one, um, one of the things that you said in Fresh Dialogue is that you change your ideas about how appropriate your symbols are on a daily basis. Is that still true for you? Oh no, absolutely. I and mean, it's, it's it's something that, that I think about a lot, and I feel like having done it now for a while, I get a little bit more sure-footed about like knowing when, how far I can go in certain circumstances. Um, oh, we have to take a break. So we will be back in um, just a few minutes. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the lovely illustrator and humorist Christoph Neiman. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, this is Scott Biondich, Global Packaging Manager at the Coca-Cola Company. And I'm really excited about the upcoming Fuse brand identity and package design event in New York City this April. I'll be there revealing the critical steps to developing differentiated and preferred packaging for consumers around the world. Design gurus Rem Koolhaas and Philippe Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target, will go in-depth into the most pressing issues we face. They'll deliver cutting-edge ideas that demonstrate brand growth and bottom-line impact through innovative strategy and design. For more information, call 888-670-8200. Visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD or send an email to register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Hey, rise to the challenge. I look forward to seeing you in the Big Apple this April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. 
Tune into Small Business Trends Radio with Anita Campbell every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Each week, Anita and expert guests provide a big picture view of the small business market, identifying the trends and major events driving the robust growth of the small business market. Whether you are a small business owner or a company of any size desiring to sell small businesses or reach the small business market with a product or service, Small Business Trends Radio is your resource for trends that influence the global small business market. Right here on the bottom line for business talk, Voice America Business. Achieve total wealth management. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, businessamericaradio.com. The bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 318 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City on a very beautiful spring day. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is illustrator and humorist, Christoph Neiman. If you'd like to join our conversation or if you have a question for Christoph, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. So, Christoph, before the uh, break, we were talking about some of the um, visual symbols you utilize, but I think that a lot of your work also utilizes very unexpected metaphors. I mean, there's no question that your skill as an illustrator is phenomenal. But I think that what makes your work so special for me as the viewer is also the intellect with the skill and the way that you use metaphors. And, you know, this is just sort of one of those random, you know, sort of -of run-of-the-mill questions, but I just need to know, (laughs) how do you come up with your ideas? Do you have to work hard at it, or does it come easily to you? How do these things pop into your head? It's like magic looking at them. Well, it's uh, don't show the sweat. That's the that's the trick. No, it, it it really is hard labor. And of course, every once in a while, something just falls out of the sky in the stair and 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 works. But um, what it comes down to is really just I'm I never do any research once I get an assignment. No, so I work entirely with what I know. Uh, obviously, I read the article, mm-hmm. but. Um, that's also why I love like working for like political or business or, or cultural stuff where I already have a certain basic knowledge. But um, I, I, I really work with what I already know. So I try to supply myself constantly with like pop culture and culture mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of like, fill myself up. So I'm what I uh, call like a multi-dilettant. Like I know a little bit about a lot of things, mm-hmm. but, I, but I actually think sometimes it's harmful to know too much. And then we have kind of like the reader's perspective and try to come up with something that like the reader can appreciate because I'm not, I'm not in, on, a, on a higher scale than the reader is. And then just like sitting there and then just desperately running, running through like four, 400 different metaphors, drawing around. I, 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 I think while I draw and then sometimes when I draw something, something comes up and I realize when I add this or when I make this bigger, it turns into something. Or if I replace the car with a with a bottle of Coke, then all of a sudden it, it works or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the toughest assignment that you've ever done, that you've ever tackled? 
Oh, the, 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 uh, the American illustration was, I was really, really desperate for mm-hmm. that one, but, um. And yet, that, some of that work now is some of your most known. Yeah, I mean, a, a really, really tough one are New Yorker covers are incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. Because the pressure from the magazine is so big, understandably, because it's there, like, they sell their magazine. They have to flap on the newsstand, but essentially it has to carry the cover without a line of type. Mm-hmm. So and it's an open pitch, so you know, like a lot of other extremely intelligent, uh, uh, wonderfully gifted artists are working on the same topics, probably. So you sit there, and that's a, a lot of pressure. And also, you, you don't really have the dialogue before you send in a sketch with the art director because it's really an open pitch. You're like, yeah, so I didn't realize that's the way the New Yorker works. So they'll hire several illustrators at once, all give you the same topic. No, they hire the everybody. There's nobody's hired. Like, there's very few issues where they call people up. And uh-huh. I've had, like, one or two where the art director called me and said, you should think about this and that. But it's an open pitch. You could send an idea tomorrow and say, like, here, I, th- I think this would be a great drawing. Really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's really interesting. Now, what do you think about the, the whole brouhaha over the abandoned Mardi Gras cover in favor of the Cheney shooting cover? I Personally, from, from a design perspective, mm-hmm. I absolutely prefer the Cheney. Uh, cover. I thought it was smarter, it was more timely, it was better. The, the Mardi Gras cover, I didn't even look that much into detail about reading some of the things on blogs. I, I, I saw that there, like, things were written on, um, on like, the leg or so it said Katrina, or like, on the shirt it said Katrina or something. That's, that's one thing. From an art perspective, I don't agree, but that's another thing. I think when you start being an editorial illustrator, there's a certain thing you don't do. And it's like, things get killed, and I think you, I, I bitch to friends about when thing, my things get killed, and I've done things where I thought they would have been better covers for the New Yorker or like other things that didn't uh, eventually happen. But I think going out there, it's just, it doesn't, it's not right. Like it, it feels, yeah, it feels I wrong. Yeah, I felt know. like it was somehow a betrayal. And, and, and yes, it's happened to all of us. And, you know, part of what I was talking about in my monologue is, you know, we of course always think that what we do is yeah. the right thing. And our, just, you know, the design that I created is better than what the client picked and or what the client didn't pick. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, I think that, for me, it felt, in as much as I could understand topically, and I felt very sympathetic about it from a topical standpoint, to have that killed. Yeah. Um, I also felt that the Cheney cover was a better illustration. It was smarter. And I also thought that there was a wonderful space around the illustration that was done right after Katrina that was on the New Yorker cover. On there New Yorker there were a number of them. There was yeah, the, the, the blues the cover, which yeah, was very like, so like quiet, but uh, I stunning. think like very yeah. strong in mm-hmm. its quietness. But there was also the one with the White House people, the Barry Blit, where, yeah. where, where they're drowning Browning. in the White House. White yeah. House. And that kind of covered it all. And like the Mardi Gras and the other things, I hate Carnival. Like mm. one of the reasons I'm really glad like I'm out of Germany, which I still miss in a lot of regards, is that I don't have to live through this whole horrible carnival in Cologne and like yeah. like Mainz and all these cities. Although I still always will have a special spite, uh, spot in my heart for Myra Kalman's Misery Day Parade cover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a caller on the line, um, Gregory from New York. Welcome to Design Matters. Gregory. I guess Gregory's not there. Oh, how sad. We were really looking forward to talking with him today. Um, so you and Nicholas Blackman, and I said this to him when he was on the show, you're like the Lennon and McCartney of the design community. Uh, you often collaborate on projects and have done a number of books together, most recently 100% Evil. Uh, tell us about your relationship and how you collaborate. Well, um if it wasn't for design, Nicholas is really like the best beer drinking buddy one could have. And uh, uh, I, like a lot of the things we did together really just came out of like 
working uh, working together during the day at the times and then meeting up at night and talking politics and talking culture and talking like a lot of illustration and design and then really finding out that we had like a lot of common interests in like publishing like doing certain kind of books that that, that speak to a certain audience and that also uh, 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 like these like small publications are for me like a better um, better outlet for you know there's always this vanity aspect in illustration i try to really keep that as low as possible in my everyday work well tell me about that though what what is this vanity aspect that well, you're talking so, like, about i think 99% of all illustrators or probably like a, like a majority of graphic designers do their job because they at some point in their life drew and probably drew better than other people and like try to like at least in my case you know like, try to like up your social standing by your drawing skills and so like being a rock star well yeah of course on a much much smaller scale besides that it didn't work but uh, uh, the the, uh, the problem is like when you draw like you want to show other people how well you can draw there's like always this instinct and I try to really restrain myself in like not basing my ideas and my drawings on my skill what I like to draw what maybe I can draw but really what works, what what makes the joke funnier, what makes the reader happier or laughing harder, and so this this is something where I really try to take my own interest out of my everyday illustrations, and of course that comes in like my personal human what I like is part of it, mm-hmm. but it's something that I really try to restrain myself from. Whereas these books, it's this kind of thing where I try to let go and just do whatever I want to do in in 100% evil. There's like some uh, crazy drawings that are just for the fun of drawing. I don't care if people get it. It's just like me sitting there and like having fun drawing. Uh, uh, there's this one like a banana iceberg mm-hmm. with like a shoe running across the ocean. I don't know if like 5% of the readers get this joke, but I had a hell of a good time drawing it. And so this is the kind of thing where I, uh, it's, it's really my outlet for, for like my repressed drawing love. <laughs> I wonder what other household appliances we'll see in future editions. But you've referred to your 100% series as editorial illustration without an editor. And so, and you've also said that you and Nicholas are creating an alternative space for drawing outside the world of magazines and publishing. At the beginning, what motivated you to do this? Um, I, I really love for places, we're working for places like the New Yorker and the Times, but obviously there's a lot of back and forth with editors, and you get a lot of ideas killed that's just part of, uh, of the job, and it's not something I'm the least little bit bitter about. The only problem is that at some point as you actually become smarter, you start not necessarily self-censoring yourself, but you know how far you can go. You know like what works. And then you try to twist a little bit, but still like you get very aware of like your your space and, and what's doable. The problem when you do that too often or for too long at some point you automatically walk within these boundaries. So, like setting up a project that deliberately takes down these barriers and where you can actually draw whatever you want nobody would ever kill it where it's all about you know, usually always you always say oh I would have done something much much funnier if they would have let me and this is the kind mm. of place where we say like well everybody lets us do anything so here we can really prove or like prove to ourselves like what we would actually do if nobody told yeah, us like ultimate accountability yeah. in many ways yeah um, so what is next with the 100% series? I was really interested because initially in, in the research that um, Jen, my researcher, found on you, it was about the 100% was 23% of this or 7% of this, and then 100% Evil came out, and that was 100%. 
and I wasn't sure if that meant that this was the final piece in the series. And I actually never asked Nicholas that, so I must ask you. Well, it is. Uh, it's a very long story, and probably like one more, uh, one one beer too many involved in coming up with that concept. It, initially, the idea was also to self-publish these things mm-hmm. and to not go through a publisher. It was really like an outlet that we wanted to do for some friends, and we only printed 100 of each of them at the beginning. Right. And then also we didn't want to make any profit on them. So we divide the production cost by 100. So one book would cost exactly 100th of the production price. And then like the first book cost uh, $2,300 to make. So one book costs $23 equals 23%. 23%. And then we would go on until we fill up the whole library would be $100, 100% books. And the problem with that was just that production of these uh, it was so intense and so much work to produce them and then we would only have 100 so it would be really like stingy with like not giving them out to people because mm-hmm. they'd be gone like within a month or so and then sure. there would be other people we would want to give them to and then we had such a good uh, relationship with Princeton that we at some point showed them what we were working on with 100% evil and they liked it and they said they would publish it that's when we said like to hell with our <laughs> with our concept we right. like have much more fun like actually having a book that where we have a couple of thousand and, and really like people being able to buy them all over the world and also what wasn't the case back then you couldn't buy things over the internet and now you can so right. you can really re- reach a huge there. audience yeah. now and that's a, that's a huge advantage we'll have a couple more questions about 100% Evil we'll come back after our break and talk about it a little bit more I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Melman on Voice America Business I am your host Debbie Melman and my guest today is illustrator and humorist Christoph Neiman we will be right back with our broadcast after these messages so please don't go away Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hello, I'm Sharon Ryder Lindbergh from Unilever North America. I'll be speaking at Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event in April at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. I'll be discussing the development and the rollout of the new Hellman's Global Brand Identity. Fuse is the destination for brand design leaders. Will you be there? Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD or call 888-670-8200 to find out more about this great event. Consider this an investment in your brand's future. Clear your calendar and prepare to walk away with inspiration, insight, and creative new ideas to implement when you return to the office. Stay at the top of your game. Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD today. Mention design and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Look forward to seeing you in New York in, in April. Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson talks about the nuts and bolts of starting, running, and expanding the business. From time management, leadership, sales, marketing, and customer service to office management, using technology, business plans, accounting, taxes, and networking. Danielle and her expert guests share their years of experience on a variety of topics. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel for Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson. Useful tips, authoritative advice, creative solutions, Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. 
You work hard, and you need to take time to relax and rejuvenate yourself. Travel is one of the most effective and gratifying ways to achieve this. Tune in to Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Your host, Judy Jackson, will teach you how you can enhance your lifestyle through travel. Travel Connections will also bring you the latest news on what's hot and exciting in vacation and travel trends. So tune in to Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk show on the air focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today is the wonderful illustrator, humorist, author, Christoph Neiman. If you want to join our conversation or if you have a question for Christoph, now is your chance. Our phone lines are open, 866-472-5790, and we do have a caller on the line. Gregory is back with us. Gregory, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Christoph. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Um, I know one of the things I love the most is I, I buy old Women's Day and Family Circle magazines from the 40s and 50s and early 60s, and the thing that I pour over that I just devour is a lot of the product illustration in the advertisement. Um, I always find somehow it's much more interesting than plain old photography. And I'm wondering if, if um, you ever think there's a way that there would be not a full return, obviously, but some return to illustration of product, or is it that we live in a society where the consumer must see what the product looks like, or they won't be able to find it on the shelf, thereby creating a sort of um, consumer product images for dummies mentality. I, I, I really think that probably won't go back to that, because right now I'd probably be too curious, I mean, depending on the product, maybe if there's something like a computer chip or like a certain abstract uh, gizmo for, for a computer, there would be a way to illustrate the idea of that, but I think that people are so savvy, they're so curious. I, if I want to, if I buy a computer or or, or a sneaker or a car, I definitely want to see the car. I wouldn't want to see a, a drawing of that. Um, and I think illustration is probably more powerful in other areas than than necessarily in that. And when you see the the fashion illustrations in the in the, in the front page in the front in the A section of the Times, there's a lot of drawn fashion. Uh, uh, I, I really think that the only reason they do this is probably to save on the on the photo shoots and on the on the uh, on the uh, on the rights and uh, and not necessarily because it gives you a better idea of whatever fashion looks like. Of course, a lot of them really can't illustrate very well. <laughs> uh, it doesn't give you a good sense of it. Is there any um, is there any place you'd you'd like to see illustration uh, in advertisement really? Well, I really think that in, in, in a lot of it's come back a little bit more. There was this wonderful uh, issue of the New Yorker where, where Target kind of like rented out the mm. entire issue and, 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 and all these gorgeous, gorgeous ad from from Milton Glaser and Yokushimutsu and all all these guys. And that, that was that was great. And I think for that it worked just beautifully. I think for 
I mean, all the business, uh, uh, like like all the insurance uh, business, economic uh, stuff. I think illustration is just a beautiful vehicle to to convey these abstract terms, much rather than like showing the 50th uh, like shake hands pinstripe <coughs> suit uh, uh, couple, <laughs> which doesn't give me anything. But uh, it's got to be carefully done. So, uh, so, but I, th I still think that their power illustration has power that that, that uh, eventually also will. Uh, come to come to carry more. Okay, Christoph, great, thank you. you. Uh, Gregory, I just stand on the line for one more second. Yeah. I just want to ask, I think I want to know if you and both Christoph have seen um, the United Airlines advertisements, the, the sort of moving illustrations that don't really quite look like animation. They really do look like illustrations that are moving um, of the people going through their day, taking a United Airline to you know a new job or yeah. some sort of... And I, I think that, that does remind me a little bit of sort of old school illustration to some degree. I, I, I love a lot of them. One thing that irritated me, I think I saw this one illustration of a guy fighting a dragon made out of numbers, which I think is a New Yorker cover. So I don't oh, know if okay. they reused this drawing. I mean, it might have been mistaken. Okay, I but but it, it, there are like some of them I think are illustration. I have this huge stock illustration problem. So mm -hmm. like the whole idea of reusing something and not doing something for a certain purpose. But that's like also like my little like crusade that I fight that uh, I don't know if that's really like uh, diminishing the value of the of the of the ads. Mm -hmm. Well, I yeah I, I agree with that actually. Um, thank you for calling, Gregory. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks, Christoph. Thank you, Christoph. Um, in I think that the world of illustration has has obviously changed rather dramatically since the the days that Gregory is talking about with the Family Circle and Ladies Home Journal illustrations. Who are you influenced by? Um, I mean, it's funny, like uh, like a lot of like a lot of times when I met people, they uh, 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 go like, "Oh wow, I thought you were 60. because like from the I'm oh, such so a traditionalist in like my approach that that people couldn't believe that I'm like only 35. But I mean, I I sometimes feel I should write like Seymour Quast and and Brad Holland and, and Milton Glaser like a royalty check for like fifty dollars for every assignment that I do, not be, not because I feel like so much stylistically influenced, but they invented like a new form of illustration of like metaphorical editorial illustration that does something else like something that Norman Rockwell hasn't done or like mm -hmm. that's something that like the, uh, especially traditional American illustration hasn't done before where you really try to I, I, I call it kind of like the visual equivalent to a headline where you kind of look at it you get the story you get the gist of it and then after reading through the um, article maybe you get like another level and Especially like Seymour and 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 and, and Brad Hall, they're masters at that. And I think to an, uh, to a degree they invented it. And looking at these illustrations definitely uh, um, inspired me a lot uh, with my work. Um, I read another interview um, about you, and in the in the piece, the interviewer questioned you about politically minded illustrators and how they are usually unafraid to debunk anything from myths to mathematicians. And asked if you had any personal sacred cows, in which you replied. Um, you love mathematics and wouldn't dare debunk anything in that department. What do you love most about mathematics? It's just it's just philosophy without the mess of the world around it. It's just really clean, like two plus three is five, and mm. it's really like it's like these systems that make perfect sense, and they can become extremely complex, but they're always like tight. They always like when you think hard enough, or like this whole idea of like solving a mathematical problem. It's just probably like. A beautiful escape of like escaping the problems of the world that there is like a system out there that's like endless in any direction but still absolutely beautifully uh, structured and completely straight in a way would you what what illustrations what what work in your sort of portfolio 
of people that you love and admire would you equate to that with that type of beauty? Is there somebody or some things, a piece of illustration, a piece in in your um, mind that somehow has that same resonance? Of my of myself or of either of, of yourself or of other illustrators. I meant other illustrators, but I'd also love it if you would share what you think is maybe some of your best work. Oh, no, there, 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 but there's for example like the Ishvan Banya's uh, uh, book uh, um, Zoom. Mm-hmm. And this is something where you have beautiful drawings that are in, beautiful enough to kind of like drool over them for a long time, but also the idea of like this repeating scene growing bigger and bigger. And it's something the equivalent that, of pi. <laughs> no, no, but it's really something that's very, it's, it's like this closed system. It's something that really makes sense. It's really something that takes the viewer by the hand and like guides you through it, but in the, like still gives you enough... Um, room left and right to uh, dream about and like I don't know if I uh, we have the perfect example in terms of uh, 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 in terms of illustration but for example the James Turrell uh, the, the the room at PS1 with the hole in the ceiling um, that just appears as like a blue square just like magically hovering about you like this kind of thing for me is like mathematics it's just mm-hmm. beautiful it's perfect it's just the sky there's no there's no smoke and mirrors it's, it's the real deal but but it's still absolutely magical in it. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my favorite quotes of yours is this. The most powerful emotions don't happen in front of, but inside the head of the viewer. One of the ways I try to accomplish that is by taking an image that looks as benign as possible on the outside and then add some clues so it starts twisting around once it has entered the viewer's mind. Can you talk a little bit more about that or examples in your work where you feel that was most evident? Um, I mean that's really something that I try to accomplish with every with, with 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 everything. And I mean, for me, it's 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 like an example. And I don't know if if that if that's too abstract. But for example, when you look at or when I look at Edward Hopper, mm-hmm. it's like beautiful drawings. But I feel when I leave the room, they're still beautiful. Mm-hmm. They're they're still amazing. They're still wonderful. Like the world is still rich and beautifully lit. And and whereas when I, when I, when I look at let's say like an Edward Hopper, I feel like the moment I don't look at it, it falls apart. Mm-hmm. It's just it needs me as a viewer. I'm the only one who understands how perfect that is. Like the way like he quotes certain things, like a chair or a person. It's something that really needs me as a viewer. I feel I'm I'm an absolutely necessary part of the of this piece of art because it needs me as a viewer. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And that, you're and part is, of the reality, you're part of the experience. Yeah, of whereas like there's other art that I absolutely adore. Like, I think the Sistine Chapel would be absolutely fine without me. <laughs> I, I think okay. I think okay. I think it's great, but, but but it's something that doesn't give me this 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 like feeling of exuberance while looking at it. Not because I don't appreciate the art, but really because I feel there's other people who get it too. And for me, the the ultimate. Art experience is always when I feel I'm the only person on earth who gets this right now. And even though I know that other yeah. people like get Hockney or, or get a book by Jonathan well, Francis. Well, speaking or, right to you, I mean, that's part of the reason I love yeah. poetry so much. There, there's poetry that, you know, Charles Olson, for example, you know, with his wonderful Maximus to himself. I really, truly believe, despite the fact that this poem was written way before I was born, that when he wrote, I have had to learn the simplest things last, which made for difficulties, he was actually writing about me. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that to a degree you can design this process and not you, know, you can't make it perfect. Otherwise, there would be a lot more amazing des- uh, design out there. But I think you can work to really put the viewer as like the ultimate goal of your of your of your drawing. Not to draw something that you think is funny or your peers think is funny, uh, th- uh, are funny. I think when you really take 
the the viewer, like let's say a reader of the Times or a reader of Business Week or a reader of a of a of a, of a website into account, he can do something and see like what would I in their position like or like what would I right. find funny and like kind of create a setup to maybe design something like, like an experience like that and, yeah. and, and kind of like build up a trap almost. Yeah, to get inside their, their heads. Yeah. Um, we have another caller, and I'd like to do that uh, before we take our break. Andrew from New York, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, thank you. Uh, just a quick question that kind of goes with what you were talking about. Who are some of the illustrators out there now that you think are doing great work, someone that's up and coming that you'd like to keep your eye out on? I mean, uh, there, there, there are really so many out there. Uh, I, um, I still think that like people like like Richard McGuire is just somebody I admire, even though I don't even know if he calls himself an illustrator. Um, also, uh, I admire comments still with like the the elements of style. It's just absolutely stunning what they do. And there's a lot of young illustrators too. There's like some people who really manage to build like a visual universe that you feel they can easily walk around in and. Also, like a lot of the British guys from the last uh, three or four years, uh, like Odin Ryan, I don't know, probably British, but like uh, um, uh, uh, that really come from a much more like traditional uh, drawing style that just produce absolutely stunning work. Thank you for calling Design Matters, Andrew. Uh, we have to take a little bit of a break. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is illustrator, humorist, and author, Christoph Neiman. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. Dynamic and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, this is Scott Biondich, Global Packaging Manager at the Coca-Cola Company. And I'm really excited about the upcoming Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event in New York City this April. I'll be there revealing the critical steps to developing differentiated and preferred packaging for consumers around the world. Design gurus Rem Koolhaas and Philippe Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target, will go in-depth into the most pressing issues we face. They'll deliver cutting-edge ideas that demonstrate brand growth and bottom-line impact through innovative strategy and design. For more information, call 888-670-8200. Visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD or send an email to register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Hey, rise to the challenge. I look forward to seeing you in the Big Apple this April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.45 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman live from the Empire State Building in beautiful New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is illustrator, humorist, and author, Christoph Neiman. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Christoph, the last 15 minutes of our show, you can call 1-866-472-5790. Um, 
Christoph, in, in New York AIGA seminar on illustration, you open the presentation describing the average illustrator as somebody who spends his or her miserable childhood drawing big noses. Um, is that how you spent your childhood? I think I spent a lot of time, like various size noses. <laughs> <laughs> now, why is that? <laughs> what is it about the nose? No, uh, no, it's, it, it's, I mean, it's definitely like drawing oh, yeah. faces yeah. is really like the, the, the thing that you just like are drawn to. And you, when you look at like Mad Magazine or like Asterix or the stuff that I, that I looked at, and when there's like the thing that you start right. drawing. Did you draw that turtle profile that was always in the back of TV Guide? Never. Never. I mean, I saw this, there was like this, there was a, there was a pirate or something, but I really tried to copy it more Drucker, like the real deal. Yeah. So when did you know that you first wanted to be an illustrator? What, what, was your, what is your first creative memory? Um, I, I have this one drawing when I was four where you have an Indian on a dinosaur attacking a cowboy. But I, of, I of course, have no conscious Indian memory of that one. Indian on a dinosaur. And I was, I was looking, I remember like looking at yeah. that when I was 12 and I was like, wow, that wasn't so bad. But uh, I, I actually knew I wanted to be an illustrator very early on. Yeah. Um, tell us about the op-ed, the op artwork you're doing for the New York Times. Um, I came here in '97, and it was uh, it was a gorgeous time because the Lewinsky scandal broke up yes. uh, pretty soon, and it was just fantastic because I'm really into politics, and I, I love institutions like the Times. I'm, I'm yes. just a sucker for that kind of thing. And yeah, there you had a political scandal where nobody died, nobody got hurt, but it was extremely entertaining with like really colorful players on all sides. I have to tell you that when all when that all sort of died down, I felt like I had lost something in my life. I I on the one hand, I felt like that, but like I felt especially miserable by what it got replaced with. Yes. yes. And uh, and and yes. it's taken a lot of fun out of like working for political stuff since that isn't around anymore. But that was really the time where I kind of like got to know not personally but from 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 their columns, like the Times columnists, the writers, in like all the political magazines that I read. And so, how do you generally go about working? I understand that working. Doing an op art piece is generally done fairly quickly. Not a lot of time to do it. Yeah, which is uh, which is the great fun because usually I mean I'm talking about the relationship with editors. They are more scared of a white page than they are of like a bad drawing or like something that people might misunderstand. Uh -huh. And so like usually a tight deadline works to your advantage. Give somebody three weeks to think. They find something they don't that they they don't like. But in two hours, they're just there's a certain amount of gratitude that kind of like lets you get away with things. Um, I want to ask you another question about 100% uh, evil. Um, I read an interview with you about the making of the book wherein you said, we don't want to do yet another political anti-Bush piece, but treat the notion of evil as the starting point for what I like to call visual poetry. Um, what do you consider to be visual poetry? Um, Really, in this case, it was it just I've, I've spent so much time looking at electoral uh, voting maps mm -hmm. before the last election. I think I spent like entire days like going through like ten websites. I really got so sick and tired of this whole thing. And even though I feel very strongly about my political opinions, I just felt I wanted not to use every single drawing of mine. Not that I can work only political, but I didn't want like give these guys like the benefit of using all my energy for them. And I wanted to create something that really gives the reader like really the equivalent of like like writing where you don't write necessarily to, to advance the story but to kind of like dive into like the, the, the visuals like you would dive into a story and, 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 and kind of like get the emotions and like obviously it's all based on humor and they're, they're, they're they're, they're separate drawings, but we try to really build within the book a certain narrative of, of like like the succession of drawings that kind of like 
at the end where you get like an idea of we, what we consider evil without writing it, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but really like with all these different ideas kind of like like circling our like blurry idea of what 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 evil is or what is being perceived as evil in the world. So I mean, evil is obviously a, a big word. Um, the axes of evil that we are surrounded by or in the midst of or creating ourselves. Um, how do you feel about the current administration? Oh, oh give me another hour. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it's something where, I, as I said, it, I really, I, it was like so close to me. I mean, the, 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 the metaphor that I like to use, like for me, like during the Lewinsky scandal, it was like reading the sports pages. Mm-hmm. It was great, good fun. Like their team, our team, we score, they score. It was fantastic. And then after 9-11, it was just so close and it just... And it still makes me so mad, but but it was really like reading the, the metro sections all happening on my street, and it's like if I walk out the door, it's like it's happening to me right there. And what I try very unsuccessfully is to really read it like the weather pages, mm-hmm. like tomorrow it's gonna rain, there's nothing I can do, I can bring an umbrella, and like well, hopefully it's gonna be summer at some point. Mm-hmm. And so I try, and of course like this approach totally doesn't work. And I read this. Um, this piece in the New Yorker about Bush and science, which really made my blood boil again about what the administration is just doing intellectually to to America and therefore like through the position of America uh, to the world when you look at the global warming and other things and I mean, there, there I mean, there's a lot of issues, but definitely uh, uh, the, the whole war on terror is definitely the the, the one p all the economic stuff I think is bad. I think it hopefully it can be reversed to a degree or another. Mm-hmm. But I think what's what's happening right now with like the standing of America in the world and like how how we and we I consider myself part of this uh, um, like messing up uh, like the political situation. I think there's some irreversible irre- harm being done right now that I'm just extremely scared about. Do you find it harder to create visual metaphors when the subject matter is this dire? I mean, I. I think I did one single piece on September, or like maybe two pieces on September 11th. One was like an assigned, or like, I mean, there was like a lot of pieces about September 11th, but I never did really like, a, I did one personal piece about it because it felt like, what can I draw about this? I have an extremely hard time drawing like something about human suffering, like real human suffering. You know, if it's about like right. the tenth the abstract degree of some psychological uh, uh, a part of it that's something I feel perfectly comfortable with uh, but but I think the, my drawing skills or my intellect is not big enough to really like show human suffering in there and I, I know there's people love Sukho's work people mm-hmm. love like a lot of like people uh, like artists who tackle these subjects for me it's actually ne- never really satisfying and something where for me, very personally, words are much better, and like nine times words and maybe one times a photograph are just a better way of 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 handling that. And like the famous Vietnam photographs are something that like no illustration for me has ever come close to. Yeah, I think that it's hard to create a, a visual pun or or um, something satirical out of something yeah, that. Horrific. And I think that my biggest problem with that, again, is like what I mentioned earlier, like my vanity. I'm still doing a drawing. I'm still being an artist, like showing the world of, like uh, showing the world how, how witty I am or how, how well I can draw. And I can never really forget about that. So right. when the subject just becomes too dire, I f- just feel really bad about sitting there and drawing on it. Yeah, no, and that's why Glenn Gould stopped, pa- stopped playing the piano. Yeah. It's for that very reason he felt like you know, he couldn't participate in this anymore and his playing was just for the sake of showing off that he could play. Yeah. And, um,. I wish I could draw like Glenn Gould can play. I wish I could do anything like Glenn Gould could play. 
Um, you know, you have said that you don't consider yourself to be a satirist, but that satire is a true, though it's a terrific tool in the trade, you try as hard as you can to be a humanist. And I just wanted to ask you what you meant by that. I mean, it's something, again, when it comes to the, like the, 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 the vanity aspect of drawing, but it also comes about, uh, you, you sit there in New York, uh, 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 like being surrounded by designers, by beautiful restaurants, great museums, like, you know, I was just at the Armory show, there was just like so much fantastic stuff out there, and then there's all this crap going on around there, mm -hmm. uh, like around you, like even in New York, man, you don't have to go far to re, uh, uh, see a lot of that stuff happening, I know it sounds like, it's not the, like the, 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 the most amazing uh, um, realization, but kind of getting staying grounded and like not like even when you get like a, like a cover of the New Yorker, like not forgetting mm -hmm. that like all this stuff is out there. I mean, it's really like benign, stupid thought, but it's really something that I that is not very easy. And staying uh, grounded, staying real. Yeah, and and like like you know like staying uh, staying in touch with people, like taking time for things, not getting. Like, it's the easiest thing in the world, is, like being a workaholic. It's so easy. I have no respect for it. Uh, because I, I know I could work there for 20 hours. It's great. It's easy. You put something in, you get something out. And dealing with people is so much more difficult because I can work hard for six days and then be lazy for one, and it works out perfect. Mm -hmm. I can't be nice to my kids for six days and then be nasty for one day. Mm -hmm. It doesn't add up like that. Right. I can build up. I cannot build credit w when dealing with 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 humans as I can with with my finances or with my work. And so, and, and that is something that that I think probably I'm not the only one struggling with that or trying to struggle with that. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I wanted to close the show by asking you about your book, your upcoming book, The Police Cloud, which I have been very lucky to see a preview copy of. It's it's absolutely beautiful. It's touching. It's bittersweet. It's funny. Um, tell us how this came about. Uh, I, I was always extremely reluctant to do children's books because it's kind of like it's the default move for illustrator. Oh, I've been doing illustrations for three years. I'm going to do a uh, children's book. Um, uh, I have two kids, and with like uh, especially the older one, I was like trying to put him asleep by telling him stories. Um, and I would kind of like repeat five characters over because he liked clouds, he liked policemen, he liked firemen, and then helicopters. So like these four characters would kind of like interact for an hour in like this like mindless uh, rambling until he eventually fell asleep. And after doing this for for like two months, uh, uh, I at some point just like came up, like all of a sudden it started to make sense. And like he was probably already asleep, but I felt like oh I better <laughs> write this one down. And then I wrote it down and essentially finished the book and and and, and found great great publishers. Uh, and it's coming uh, out when? It's coming out early 2007. Wonderful. Well, we I just have to ask you one or two last questions. Part of my pop culture quiz. It wouldn't be a full show without it. Um, what's your favorite color? I think uh, eventually red wins. Red. And yeah. what is your least favorite word? War. And then, of course, the um, standard question, your favorite curse word. Scheiße. Oh, very good. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Christoph. I just had such a wonderful time interviewing you. Thank you so much. Um, I'd also like to thank Brian Travis and Ruben Colomb at Voice America Business. I'd like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. Joining me next week is writer and educator Kenneth Fitzgerald. We will have a very erudite conversation, I hope. Thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. 
Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.